The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we come to the conclusion of a very brief series in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Tonight we're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the third message from this book. And read the uh, full chapter of chapter 3 and then uh, look to highlight a couple of key themes tonight. So if you have your Bibles, read along with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and may be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Now, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray as we come to the word tonight. Oh God, you have given us these words. You have revealed yourself to us through your servants, through the words of your Holy Spirit in the scriptures. We pray now that you would enlighten our hearts and direct our thoughts to learn more of you, that we may live for you and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. When your alarm rings in the morning... This uh, jarring but perhaps necessary start to each one of your days calls you to rise to the tackle, the duties that you have before you uh, in each day. And as that alarm rings, you may have a variety of thoughts going through your mind. Perhaps some of you are goal-oriented like me and you immediately start running through the list of what you have to do that day. Maybe you look forward to some opportunity or event that's coming uh, in the day that's ahead of you. Maybe you're despairing. 
maybe because of some disappointment or failure, perhaps uh, some pain or anxiety causes the new morning to be uh, a pain and, and to, to cloud your attitude as you wake up. Maybe, maybe the boredom and seemingly meaningless repetition of day after day after day grinds you down and sweeps over you as you wonder, how is this alarm, how is this morning going to be any different than every day that's gone before? What thoughts enter your mind when you wake up and your alarm rings each morning? Well, as Paul comes to this last chapter in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to lay out for us both a a grand theological point as well as some key practical principles for us to apply that ought to shape our mornings and our days as we arise to each thing that the Lord has called us to. I want to look at two things tonight from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's first look at verses 1 through 5. And here in these first five verses of of 2 Thessalonians 3, the point that Paul is going to draw our attention to is the faithfulness of the Lord. Here it is the faithfulness of the Lord that undergirds all that we do and all that we are called to on each new day. You may remember from last week, and Pastor York was talking about chapter 2 of of this book, that Paul was calling the Thessalonians' attention to this man of lawlessness— this, this activity of Satan, which was already at work in the world, though it would increase and appear climactically in preparation for Christ's return. Well, in these verses, in, in the first couple of verses of chapter 3, Paul is now asking the Thessalonians to pray for him. Pray for us, he said, that the word may speed ahead, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. The same wickedness that Paul had talked about with the man of lawlessness in chapter 2 is now, again, Paul's concern as he uh, looks ahead to the Word of God, to the Gospel being spread through his ministry. And he asked that the Thessalonians pray for him, that he would be delivered from the work of these evil men. But not only is Paul concerned about his own work of evangelism in this chapter, you'll note that in verses 3 and 4, Paul is also worried about the faith of the Thessalonians. And he notes that the evil one will be eager not only to stop the, the progress of the gospel, but to attack the faith of those who have already heard the gospel. And so Paul, in verse 3, speaks of the need for the Lord to guard the Thessalonians against the activity of this evil one, the work of Satan. Well, this man of lawlessness will be climactically revealed in the future right now. The work of Satan is opposing the spread of the gospel and attacking the faith of the Thessalonians here in chapter 3. And so Paul urges that the Thessalonians pray for him. We might add, of course, that the danger that Paul talks about here, that Satan would want to attack the faith of those who have heard the gospel and and prevent the spread of the gospel is just as much a danger for us here uh, today, that, that those of us who have heard the gospel too are under attack from the evil one, from Satan. But if the danger to our faith remains the same today as it did for, for Paul, Second Thessalonians 3, uh, the promise that Paul declares in this chapter is also the same for us. Look at verse 3 of this chapter. While the mystery of lawlessness may be at work, Paul is here to declare not worry or anxiety over the work of the lawless one, but confidence and hope despite the work of the lawless one. And what gives Paul confidence and hope? Verse 3, it is the faithfulness of the Lord. 
If you think about what Paul's been through, it is somewhat ironic or, or incredible that a man who has been arrested, beaten, stoned to the point of death, jailed, chased, attacked, this man says, no need to worry about the work of the evil one, for the Lord is faithful. In fact, in verses 3 through 5, Paul repeats several phrases that emphasize this idea of the Lord's faithfulness. In verse 3, the Lord is faithful. In verse 4, the Lord will establish you. In verse 5, we have confidence in the Lord. See, verse after verse builds Paul's confidence in, in the faithfulness of the Lord. The picture that he gives in verse 1 is a great picture. He says that the Lord's faithfulness means that his word is going to go forth. Literally, uh, the word of the Lord will speed ahead and be honored. And this phrase, to speed ahead and be honored, is the picture of a victorious champion, a, a victorious winner of a race um, that, that has sped ahead and been honored. It's the image of a victorious runner indicating, in other words, that Paul's confidence in the faithfulness of the Lord is such that he is already picturing the victory that the word of the Lord is going to win. That victory is, is sure. Paul is confident of it because of the Lord's faithfulness. And just as the faithfulness of the Lord will continue to, to uh, speed the gospel such that it will be victorious, so also in these, these later verses, the Lord's faithfulness will secure, guard, and establish the faith of the Thessalonians, those who already believe. His faithfulness, that is the, the faithfulness of Christ, establishes us, guards us from the evil one, leads to our obedience and grounds our heart in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Perhaps we could summarize these few verses as Paul himself summarizes in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began the good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Note this surety, this confidence, this assurance that characterize the words of Paul as he discusses his Lord, his God, and your faith, and your salvation. The Lord is faithful. But it's worth pressing this question a bit further. We can see Paul's confidence here, but what gives Paul such confidence in the Lord? What grounds Paul's confidence in the faithfulness of our God? I think if we're to consider why we would have confidence in a person... We have confidence uh, when we are able to trust both the character and the ability of the person who's making a promise. Use a little analogy. If, if you are in a, a time of need and, and I come to you on behalf of the church and hand you a stack of, of $20 bills and say, here, there's $500 to help you in your time of need, hopefully you would accept that with confidence because you trust this church and, and you would trust me as a, a representative of this church. But if in the same time of need you were to receive a stack of $20 bills from a man by the name of Thomas McKennia, you might have less confidence. Some of you may know that Thomas McKennia was uh, perhaps the most um, uh, notable forger of the century. and He just passed away a couple of months ago. And uh, this man operated in London under the guise of a small print shop. He uh, mostly printed menus for small Chinese restaurants. But in the back, when he was not printing small uh, Chinese restaurant menus, he was brilliantly copying 20-pound notes and distributing them in Scotland and, and England. Um, it's, it was said that at the height of his operation, he could produce bills worth $3.3 million per day. 
Life was also full of much irony. Uh, He was arrested in 1998 and released because the warrant had a misprint on it. And then uh, he passed away uh, this past fall uh, due to a lung disease from print fumes, according to doctors. But if this man came and, and gave you a stack of $20 bills, it wouldn't matter if those bills were real. You would not be confident because you could not trust the character of the person giving them to you. Similarly, in your time of need, if I came to you and offered you a stack of bills worth $1 million, you should also be skeptical because my ability to fulfill that promise should be in question. But it's worth noting that both the character and the ability of our God are infinite. We have a God of infinite power who infinitely and lovingly cares for you and I. Some of you might be saying, well, that may well be true. I trust God's power, but maybe that's the very question you have tonight. Maybe you're coming saying, well, I know God is powerful, but can I really trust that God is infinitely caring for me? See, maybe you're coming tonight and you're suffering the pain of a physical illness. Or maybe you're coming tonight with a marriage that is breaking or or broken or contentious. Or maybe you're coming without a job. Maybe you're coming in financial need. Maybe you're coming suffering trials that that are untold that, that we can't even know. And so you say, is this really a God that I can trust? Because the life and the things that are happening to me don't really seem like the things that I would want from a God who would care for me. Maybe that's your objection tonight. Do you really trust this God? But Paul has argued elsewhere, in Romans chapter 8, that God has given us the infinite proof and demonstration of his love and willingness to act for our good when he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to suffer infinitely for you and for me. See, as he says, he was willing to send his son. And if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who could bring a charge against God's elect when God justifies? Who could condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding right now on our behalf? Who could possibly separate us from the love of Christ? As Paul argues, through faith we are united to Christ and God will just as soon reject Christ, his own son, as he will reject one of you his dear children. Do you see the root and the source of Paul's assurance in the Lord's faithfulness here? The root of Paul's assurance is nothing less than God's willingness to go to the uttermost depths to secure your heart and to secure your eternal salvation. It is what Jesus Christ has done that demonstrates God's not only ability, but his infinite love on our behalf. Tim Keller summarizes it this way. He says, see what this means. Yes, we do not know the reason why God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random, but now at least we know it is not because he doesn't love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He has given his own son, Christ. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge to the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to wipe away every single tear. In the end, our trust in God is not dependent on our circumstances. But our circumstances are just interpreted by our trust in God. 
And Paul here, resting on a God who has shown his trustworthiness and power, is confident in the faithfulness of the Lord. Here is the grand theology that undergirds everything that happens to us and everything that we do each and every day. Run to Christ. Rest on Christ. Hope in Christ. He died and rose again for you and for me. The Lord is faithful. What a glorious assurance that we have in this grand theology that Paul gives us. But if he's given this grand theology, he's also then moves on in verses 6 through 12, 6 through 13, to give us some very practical principles for each day that we rise to. Brings us right back to our alarm clocks here. See, for most of us, when that alarm clock goes off, what it's awaking us to is a day of work. And maybe that work is a job. Maybe that work is studying. Maybe that work is volunteering. Maybe that work is changing diapers and cleaning up milk spills. But most likely, our alarm clock is calling us to work. And as we are called to work, Paul here addresses us in the second part of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. He spends the bulk, really, of this chapter addressing our pattern and our motivation for the work that he's called us to do. There's at least two things that I want to uh, point out just as sort of introductory remarks about this section. First, idleness is a key thing that Paul is dealing with here. He notes that we are to keep away from brothers who are walking in idleness and that he has heard that those, uh, there are those walking in idleness. Now, this term for idleness does not just refer to the sort of lazy person we might have in, in mind, that sluggard laying on the couch with his hand in a bowl of potato chips and a stack of empty Coke cans. That fits the description of idleness here, and this word could include that. But this word can also very much include someone who is quite busy. Not busy doing anything productive, but busy. A busybody, Paul calls him in verse 11. One who may spread gossip, may spread false doctrine or ideas, may be tearing apart a community from the inside very actively. Disorderliness, a cause for disorder. That's what this word is referring to. Those who cause discord in the Christian community by being a burden socially, financially, theologically, that's who Paul's addressing when he uses this word that's translated idleness. The second introductory remark on this section that we ought to make is that we should note the root of this idleness. In verse 6, we're told that we should keep away from those brothers walking in idleness who are not in accord with the tradition that they've received from Paul. Now, this phrase to the tradition that they have received almost universally refers to beliefs or doctrine. In other words, what Paul's telling us here is that those who are walking in idleness are doing so because they are rejecting something that Paul has taught them, some truth that he's given them. There's been a number of speculations and commentaries about what that truth might be, and most assume that it was something related to the second coming of Christ. Some have posited that there were those in Thessalonica who thought that Christ was going to return any day, so why spend your time working? Why, why earn money and stack it up if Christ is ready to return? Others uh, believe that the Thessalonians believe that Christ actually already returned and have sort of instituted the eternal Sabbath. So, no more work. It's the eternal Sabbath. Um, but whatever the exact doctrine is, the result is the same. These brothers are burdening the community of Christ by not working, relying on others for financial support, and causing discord in the church by teaching and following false doctrine. 
So for all these reasons, Paul strongly rebukes these Christians and encourages the church not to imitate their behavior, but to warn them. Now, what lessons does this have for us? Well, to begin, I would note that while the reasons for idleness or disorderliness may be different today than in the context that Paul is speaking to here, idleness is still a temptation and a challenge today. While the doctrinal root may be different, idleness is not seeking diligent, steady work of not rising to do our best and to work at what the Lord has called us is not only a problem today, but is actually a growing trend culturally. That's true here in the United States, and it's true worldwide as well. And fortunately, it's especially true of my generation. Idleness is a growing trend. It's interesting, um, this trend was actually... uh, well-described in a book set to be released on Japanese culture called Bending Adversity. The book, uh, written by David Pilling, describes how Japan has tried to cope with what has been called its lost decade, a decade of no economic growth, of stagnating population, and little hope for a bright future. And the author says uh, that in coping with this, new trends have started to develop within the Japanese people. Most of you are probably very familiar with the typical Japanese uh, attitude towards work. We will work hard. We will do everything we can to succeed. The cultural and family pressure to stay up working late hours into the night, to study, 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 to reach success at each level, this has been well documented as as an attitude in Japanese culture. But a new trend is developing amongst the younger generation, uh, which the author uh, terms gambaranai which I will not uh, claim to have pronounced that Japanese word correctly. But the word means unmotivated, unmotivated. And the author summarizes this attitude as, don't try too hard, don't stress yourself. Now, this is not just a Japanese trend. This trend of, don't try too hard, don't stress yourself. Put some effort in, but as soon as you start to be stressed, back off. It's not worth the stress. This attitude is growing. It's well documented in the European Union. It's more and more documented here in the United States. The key attitude is to avoid hardship. If we can avoid hardship, then at least we're avoiding one source of pain in our lives. But this attitude, says Paul, should not be found in the church. The cause today may not be a faulty understanding of Jesus' second coming. Maybe the cause today is a frustration that jobs are so hard to come by. Maybe the frustration is that economic uh, success seems to be far-fetched or difficult. But whatever it is, at the root of this is a wrong idea of who God is, and it's a failure to trust that God will provide for you as you work diligently where he's called you. At root is a failure to obey and trust our God. See, Paul's example here in opposition to this attitude is in verses, uh, let's see, 8. With toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. And this ought to be our attitude as well. Okay, you say, well, um, good, but I have a job. Maybe you work long hours. Maybe you are working diligently and working hard, and, and idleness is not a temptation for you. What does Paul have to say to you in these verses? Well, Paul is not going to challenge your actions, perhaps, but he does want to challenge our hearts. Look at the way he describes the motivation that we have for work in these verses. 
He explains here that the reason for his hard work was so that he might not be a burden to anyone else. Again, in verse 8, we toiled and worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Each one, he says, ought to work and provide their own living, but to do so quietly so that they not burden the rest of the community. Those who are working and earning a living, he encourages in verse 13, not to grow weary in doing good. Okay, that begs a question. What good are they doing that they ought to continue in? Well, commentators are in agreement that the good they are doing is working so that they might provide for those in the community that do legitimately need help. See, while Paul is warning us here that there may be some who are idle and are, are harming the community by being a burden to them financially, there are people who are legitimately in need. And he calls those believers to continue to do good, to continue to work, to earn a living, that they might provide for those that are legitimately in need. Look at both of these here. They ought to work so that they not be a burden on others. They ought to work so that they might do good to others. What's the common theme here? Why should we work? What's our goal in our jobs? In both of these, Paul's motivation is wholly on others. It is not for himself. It is for those around him in the church community. Paul perhaps summarizes this well elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11, when he says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, and this service in the context is is generous giving financially, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Work and the pay that we receive are not to be done for our own sake, for our own wealth, for our own benefit, but that we might not burden the community, but may be able to bless the community, that it might result in thanksgiving being given to our God. Well, very good. You might say, God has given me a job, I earn money, and I have a house, and, and, and I tithe my 10%. So uh, after that, I enjoy the good things God has given me. Um, I'm applying these verses here. But why are we working? That's the question Paul's addressing here. What is your goal? See, if I examine my own heart, and my own work and jobs that I have done, I know that often the blessings of money, the goal of finding security and the retirement that I build up, or the, the goal and the desire to have certain comforts, the, the pleasure of spending money or, or having enough to uh, avoid the stress and anxiety of being burdened financially, these are goals that I have in working. And what Paul's calling us here is that the goal of working ought to be for those around us, for the community of Christ. That's why the Lord blesses us as we seek to work. Work to provide a living, Paul says, for yourself. That you might not be a burden to your community, says Paul. That you might continue to do the good of blessing your community, says Paul. Am I working diligently that I might give generously to others? That I might see thanksgiving to God abound? Now, I do want to be careful, of course. Um, Whenever I hear a sermon on, uh, you know, be generous and give a lot. In a, in a global age where technologically we are connected to the whole world, the guilt of giving can be infinite. There's a community in Africa that has a need, and you're not giving to that. And there's a community here, and you're not giving. You can have an infinite sense of guilt. And so uh, the point here is not to create sort of a, an infinite sense of guilt where you always need to give more. That's not the point here. The point is your heart. The point is your heart. The point is 
where are our efforts headed? Why are working? What's our desire? What's our goal when we work our jobs, work overtime, pursue our careers? See, Paul says to work quietly, to settle down in our job, and to continue to do good without growing weary. Ambition and career and work can cause just as much disorder in your family and in your spiritual life and in the church community as idleness can. And as you see, Jesus has given us another parable of the rich man with bigger barns who builds, tears down one barns and builds bigger barns in order that he may relax and have comfort. And he's, com- he's condemned just as the lazy man is as condemned. And in the parable too, Jesus' central point is not the dollar amount that this man has, but his heart. Where is our heart in the work that we're doing? So first, Paul warns us against idleness. Secondly, he directs our heart to not be a burden to others, but to be a blessing to them in our work. Okay? Uh, Perhaps you say, I do desire to give. I'm not relying on my money, and I, I believe I work quietly in my job. I believe my heart is in the right place. Is there anything else that Paul says in this passage to me? And the answer is, yes, there is. See, Paul desires that he not be a burden to the Thessalonians. Why does Paul not want to be a burden to the church community? Why is it that Paul, you'll note in verse 9, Paul says that he had a right not to work as a minister of the gospel. And he gave up that right. Why was Paul willing to give up his right not to work for the Thessalonians? Well, as we hear, he did it as an example. And as we hear in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, it's very clear that Paul does not want anything to hinder the growth of the gospel. And if a Thessalonian were to look at Paul and say, well, there's someone not working. What's he doing? That could be a hindrance to the gospel. And so Paul's desire to set this example of diligent hard work is that he desires not to put any impediment to the gospel in front of the Thessalonians. I think what Paul is showing us here is that work is a universal language among men. Work is a language that every culture understands. All men work. And because of this, how we work, the attitude and pattern of our work, is a powerful witness to Christ in our lives. When Jesus calls us to let our light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven, work is a daily opportunity to do that. All men work. And work is a common language that when people look and say, he is working well, why is he working well? We work that there be no impediment to the gospel. One commentator writes about this passage in 2 Thessalonians this. He says, Christians in various sectors of the workplace too often undervalue the work that they do, failing to see their work as vitally related to their relationship to Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. Paul elaborates in these verses that the performance of work to the best of one's ability is a vital part of living out one's faith. This commentator follows this with a story. It's a story some of you have heard. It's a story that's been repeated often. It's a story of a a work environment before the age of computers, when these things called typewriters were used, and you'd have multiple typists producing documents for a company. And the story is told that in a room full of typists, one particular typist was noted for her diligence at work, taking fewer breaks than all the rest of the employees and working hard. So the executive of the company noticed this and called a friend of his and said, why does this person, why does this young woman 
work so hard? And his friend said, oh, that's Mildred. She's a Christian. And that's all he said. This comment puzzled the executive of the business, and so he decided to, to go ask the young woman himself. He said, why do you work so hard? And she said, well, I'm a Christian, so I work for God and not for a human boss. And the executive pondered this, and in pondering this, decided that he ought to give more credence to Christianity and investigate it. And this executive became a Christian. And this executive had a chance to share this story at a meeting once. And, and at that meeting, as he, as he shared this story, someone in the audience, as a result of the story, accepted Christ, a young man. And this young man who accepted Christ decided he ought to go to seminary and become a preacher. And this preacher spent many years in the ministry proclaiming the gospel. And as the commentator concludes, he says, who knows how many people this industrious typist has impacted for Christ? You say, very good. This is an extraordinary example. Most likely it's not going to happen to me tomorrow. Most likely someone tomorrow is not going to say, wow, look at that worker and I'll become a Christian and then I'll tell someone else and they'll become a Christian and a new preacher will be born and the world will be transformed. Probably not. But I think it is undeniably true that someone who works diligently in the workplace today is the most noticeable Christian witness in today's culture. Someone who works diligently in their job, day after day, without arguing or complaining, is the most noticeable Christian witness in today's culture. I know for me that it's true in the 10 years since graduating from college, my three summer jobs in secular environments through seminary, I had more opportunities to share the gospel of Christ, oftentimes driven because of the way I approached my work than I have in the rest of those nine years or ten years combined. And my dad, who owns a small business, strives to run his business in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord, both to his customers and to his employees, has seen several of his employees come to Christ, and others question why he acts differently than others in his industry. The stories could abound. The way we work day in and day out is a powerful witness to Christ our Savior. If we want to hold up Christ... And if we want to let others see Christ and the difference that Christ makes in our work, work quietly and diligently for Christ, not for your human boss, and you will be holding up Christ. See, this, this really just brings us right back to our alarm clocks. Because in a few hours, your alarm clocks are going to go off again. And in Monday morning, you're going to have another opportunity with either your students or your volunteers or your co-workers or your children or whoever it is, you're going to have an opportunity to work for Christ and to put Paul's own comments into practice. See, each day, the way we work is either an aroma that will draw people towards Christ or it is an aroma that will push people away from Christ. And so on Monday of this week and Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday and every day, you have the opportunity to be an aroma of Christ, to be a tangible and visible challenge to our culture and witness to our Savior. And it doesn't involve dressing in Jesus' t-shirts every day. And it doesn't involve just talking about Jesus as often as you possibly can, though it may involve talking about Jesus. It involves working quietly, diligently as unto Christ and not for man. Of course, this is a lot to ask. You know as well as I do that when I wake up tomorrow to my alarm clock, what seems like such a great challenge now will not seem so easy. 
Day after day after day, I go through the same job, I go through the same studies, I go through the same thing. How is it? Where can I possibly find the strength that day after day for an entire career, I could say, okay, today I'm ready to work for Christ. That's hard. And Paul recognizes that. And so Paul, when he concludes these comments, comes to verse 13 and says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul knows the danger that we have in growing weary and doing good. After all, what is the root of Paul's confidence that we will not grow weary in doing good? This brings us right back to the first five verses we started with. See, Paul's confidence in verse 4 is this. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul has confidence that you and I will do the things that he commands. Why? Not because you are really good at this or I am really good at this. Not because he thinks we can dig up in ourselves enough effort to do this. We can't. But he has confidence because the Lord is faithful. That was the grand theology that undergirded each of these principles and each of these calls of Paul. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, died and rose for you and for me. Jesus Christ stands today faithful. And so we can be confident in him. And because of his faithfulness, because of what he has done, we cannot grow weary in doing good in our faithful Savior. So may the Lord direct your hearts to, as Paul says here, the love of God for you and the steadfastness of Christ on your behalf. It is this love of God for you and the steadfastness of Christ on your behalf that will ground you tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday and every day of our careers that we might give grace and glory to our God and Father. And as Paul concludes here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all unto his glory. Let's pray. Oh God, it is, it is humbling and challenging to hear your call that we might work diligently, that we might work with a desire to focus on our community and to bless our community for Christ, that we might be diligent daily, that we might not put an impediment before the gospel, but that Christ might be evident in our lives. It is so easy for us to grow weary in doing good. So, Lord, I pray that tonight the faithfulness of the Lord in whatever circumstance we find ourselves would undergird us and would hold us up. May our eyes be fixed on Christ, for it's the steadfastness of Christ that makes the faithfulness of the Lord evident in our lives. Pray that we might rest on Christ now and this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.